Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 14 is today's scripture. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been studying through the book of Hebrews. It's a letter that was written to a group of former Jews who are being tempted to turn away from Jesus and to turn back to their old way of life. And the theme of Hebrews is very simple. It's this, Jesus is better. You say, it's better than what? Fill in the blank. Jesus is better. And that's such a great theme for us to study in our lives because as much as any other time, I think we're tempted to turn away from Jesus. And I want you to hear me, church. I'm not talking about people who aren't here this morning. I'm talking about us. You know, it's possible for us to turn away from Jesus and still be at a Sunday gathering, still participate in a missional community, still be a part of a a DNA group or coffee group, still give of your finances and maybe you even serve, yet at the same time to lose trust in Jesus, to not find your satisfaction in Jesus. And so this is a great text for us to study I think about this last week. I had coffee with a friend and I asked, I asked him, hey, how are you doing? And he replied in a way that I don't think I've ever heard anyone reply. He said, I'm content. That's an amazing response to be content in Jesus. Because if we are not intentionally centering our psyche towards gratitude, then our minds automatically move toward disdain. And that simply means that if we aren't being intentional on a daily basis to take inventory of our lives and to grow in the grace of Jesus, to celebrate graduations and the incredible job that Michael did in in leading us today and just the evidence of God's grace that we see around us, If we don't celebrate those things and give Him thanks for the blessings that He bestows in our life, then we automatically become discontent and our hearts will not remain in neutral. They will move toward other lesser gods. We will look for satisfaction outside of Jesus. That's why this book is so important for us because that's what was happening to the Hebrews. Just a quick introduction. Last week, we looked at this argument that the author is making that Jesus is better than angels. Some historians believe that these new believers had been taught that Jesus was a created being and that he was somehow equal to or lesser than the the preeminent angel, the archangel Michael. And so they had begun worshiping angels instead of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews has used seven Old Testament passages throughout chapter 1 in order to demonstrate that Jesus is superior to any created beings, even to the amazing angels. And we've been looking at that. This week, as we wrap up chapter 1, I'd like to focus on one major characteristic of God that isn't talked about very often. One major characteristic of God that I think is actually rarely talked about, but it carries incredible weight and huge importance in the Christian life. The immobility of God. The fact that God is unchanging in His nature. His immutability. I didn't even say it right the first time. 
his immutability. That's the way that theologians have described who God is. Um, my wife asked me what I was teaching on this week, and I said, I'm teaching on God's immutability. And she said, does that mean that God is mute? I said, no, it means that he is unchanging. And now I can't even say it correctly. His immutability. Now, why is that important to us as we begin to think about it? I don't know if you've ever had a friend before that you shared a close relationship with. Maybe they were there for you in a hard time. Someone that you really trusted with your heart. And then you were away from them for a very long time. Have you ever had that experience? And then when you get back together with them, it's just almost as if time had never passed. Like you just don't miss a beat. That's a very small picture of God's immutability. See, the fact that God does not change, and that means ultimately that He can be trusted. Look with me in verse 10. The writer of Hebrews says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's referencing Psalms 102, verses 25 through 27. Now, you're tempted to hear me say that and just to kind of move on past it, but let me make a quick point to say it's really interesting in this text that the writer of Hebrews is using seven Old Testament passages in order to prove that Jesus is superior. You say, why is that important? What's well, important to us that we see that the Bible isn't split into an old book and a new book and that God isn't represented as some kind of bipolar superior being in which it seems as if He's a little maybe depressed on one side and manic on the other. That's many times that we think about the Old and New Testament. We think that people came to know God and love Him by obeying the law and that it was the law that earned favor with God in the Old Testament. But that's not true. It's God's grace throughout the Bible. It's kind of like credit in the Old Testament and then debit in the New Testament. They were looking forward to the coming rescuer and redeemer and savior, Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament. They were still dependent upon God's grace. And the same is true in the New Testament as we look back to the work that Jesus has done. And so we see that there aren't two testaments that are split and that we come to know God somehow by rules and law before. No, it's God's grace all along. And as he writes, the writer says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. He's speaking to God's unchanging nature, to His immutability. We see it throughout these verses. One systematic theology says it this way, God's immutability can be explained in the fact that God is unchanging in His being, His perfections, His purposes, and His promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions, and He acts and feels differently in response to different situations. The writer of Hebrews is pointing to the fact that Jesus existed before the foundations of the earth, so think about that. Before there was a beginning, before time was created, Jesus was. And he says, and the heavens are the work of your hands. I love that word picture that he's drawing out here when he says, he's painting a word picture in which he says, the heavens are the work of your hands. It points to the greatness of God. That the heavens 
are impossible for us to even comprehend. Now, Sam, are you ready on on, uh, audio? I've got a video that I want you to see that points to how incomprehensible the heavens are. Here's what I want you to try to wrap your mind around, and then this idea will blow your mind. What we just saw, each of those galaxies, those are just the beginning of the works of His hands. Just the beginning. How big and how great is our God? How splendid, how powerful, how enormous that we can't even fathom the work of His hands. But these verses go on to say something very unique. Look in verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you're the same. And your years will have no end. Richard Phillips in the Reformed Expository Commentary says it this way, The great works of God in creation will come to an end. The majesty of the mountains, the roaring of the waterfall, the beauty of the valley, all these will run their course and ultimately perish. Indeed, like an old set of clothes, they are even now wearing out. Stars are using up their hydrogen. Matter is converted to energy. and There is loss. Ours is a dying universe with its end in sight. Now, how much more is this true of the tallest skyscrapers, the greatest dams that are built, the wall of China, that the greatest achievements of our day, they will be forgotten. Not simply because of decay or thousands of years, but suddenly by God's Son, when He comes to end history as we know it and judge the world, the Scriptures say He will roll it up like a robe exchanging it for a new garment. 2 Peter 3.10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But Jesus is the opposite. He never grows old. He never changes. He is the unchanging one. Now you say, why does this matter? How does God's immutability really affect us? Or even better, how should God's unchanging nature affect us? The answer is that for most of us, we don't really believe that God is unchanging. For most of us, we don't believe that He's unchanging. We believe His love for us is ever-changing. Because that's the only type of relationships that we've ever known. Each of you, no matter how good your parents were, no matter how great your mom was on this Mother's Day, you were introduced at a very young age to an ever-changing relationship. And the pattern of that relationship can continue to affect the way you view God's love for you today. Let me give you an extreme example. For some of you, this isn't extreme because I know some of your stories. I know some of you did grow up with a bipolar parent. Let's say that your mom or dad was bipolar. What were you taught about relationships in the very formative years of your life and the way in which you bonded to a parent? The pattern for you in relationship was that the only thing that's uncertain is uncertainty. Fear, distrust, 
Never knew if mom or dad was depressed or manic or never knew what was going on with mom and dad. Uncertainty was what ruled your life. Now, maybe not such an extreme example, but let's move to a different example. Maybe less extreme, but I think equally devastating. Your father suddenly divorces your mother. What kind of message does that send to you? The the person that God has placed in your life who's to be protector, the person that you thought you could trust, the man in your life who says, hey, I'm leaving your mom, but I'm not leaving you, and then he leaves? What does that communicate to you about the way in which relationships work? I know some of you have had this experience, and for some of you, your response to that has been that it's only a matter of time before the next person abandons you. And so you, you struggle greatly with trust. Another, maybe less noticeable example, less extreme, you have parents who are always pushing, try harder, do better, work hard, practice makes perfect, prove yourself. And you perform because you learn that performance equals gratitude. How does that affect your relationship with God? Do you, do you see how the patterns for our life that learning to relate, to give and receive love begins at a very early age in life? The attachment patterns uh, that we form early in life affect how we relate to others even into adulthood. And it's not that those circumstances can't be overcome. But I think the only way to really break those patterns comes through understanding the gospel and then beginning to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again as we slowly learn to walk in trust. As we meet a God who is both authentic and personal and that we learn over time can be trusted. God's ways are certain. He never changes He's trustworthy. Psalms 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now all that may sound really great as we talk about the immobility of God and we look at the galaxies and it seems so high above and maybe in some ways unrelated to us. But how can we trust that God understands? I think that's a question that most of us want to know. Like, we might believe that He's unchanging, but how do we know that He understands? How can we know that He feels our pain and is with us in the middle of the toughest of life's trials? Well, I think it's always good to look at an Old Testament quote in its original context. And if you look at Psalms 102, as the writer writes about the fact that God does not change, in light of the New Testament, we see both halves of Psalms 102. We see them as applying to Jesus because in Psalms 102, Jesus is the afflicted man who is pouring out his lament to his Father. It's his voice that we hear as he faces and then takes on the cross, as we hear him crying out. Listen to verses 3 and 4 of Psalms 102. For my days pass away like smoke, 
And my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Look at verses 8 and 9. All the days my enemies taunt me, those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Jesus in His humanity knew what it was to have His days cut short. Jesus as a man knew what it was to die young, afflicted, despised by men, even abandoned by His friends, crucified in shame. He died a cursed death with all the bitterness and darkness that a man can experience. We say, how can you understand the pain that I face in life? Because you're the unchanging one who's been through the pain. The second half of Psalms 102 is heaven's response to the anguished cry of Jesus. Yes, as a man, he was cursed and rejected and died on the cross. But as resurrected and exalted Son of God, Psalms 102.12 says, He now is enthroned forever. Listen to the way that one theologian, Arthur Pink, described this. He says, Psalms 102, this was God's answer to the plaint of Christ being cut off in the midst of his death, in the midst of his days. As man in resurrection, he received life forevermore. Do we really grasp this? For almost 2,000 years since the cross, men have been born, have lived, and then died. Statesmen, emperors, and kings have appeared on the scene and then passed away. But there is one glorious man who spans the centuries, who in his own humanity bridges those two millennia. He has not died, nor even grown old. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. God's immutability means that He is unchanging And His desires will be accomplished. We can be certain of who God is. Because He's unchanging, He cures our doubt. How does God's immutability affect His love for Christians? It assures us of our rescue. It assures us of the fact that Jesus has come on our behalf and that His work has been done and that we don't have to continue to work for our salvation. His love for us is unchanging. Why? Because we're unchanging? No, because Jesus is. And so the Father loves us. Our calling is unchanging. Our mission is unchanging. You say, how can you be so certain? God's will will not be thwarted. Read the story of Jonah. Read chapter 4. Jonah was a rebellious racist who ran from God. And when the people of Nineveh turned back to God... It took a a great fish bringing Jonah back on course. He was running as far from God as he could run and as far from Nineveh. And when he finds himself in Nineveh, he very begrudgingly calls to the people of Nineveh that they would repent. And as he does, what happens? They repent. And Jonah grows angry. And he's angry at the people of Nineveh Because he hates them and he's angry at God. And do you know why he blames God? He says, I blame you because I knew this was going to happen. Because you are unchanging. God, you are gracious and you are merciful. And I hate you for it. Because you are forgiving these racist, these terrible people. These Assyrians who have killed our, our friends and our family. And have tortured us. Jonah knew that God is faithful. 
He knew that God is gracious. He knew that God is merciful. God's mission will not be thwarted. God will bring all that He desires to pass. God gives us confidence that no matter how discouraging our circumstances may be, He's not caught off guard. His plans will not be thwarted. There's no evil that can hinder the work that He wants to accomplish in redemption. The work that He's promised us through Jesus. Now this passage ends in verses 13 and 14 in this simple way. And to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? To us, it sounds like somewhat of a strange phrase. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In the ancient times, if you remember back in the days of Joshua, in ancient times, a victorious general would place his foot upon the throat of a defeated foe. And Joshua actually had his commanders do that to the to the Canaanites that they, that they captured. And this is a picture that's saying that Jesus, in a sense, is going to place His enemies under His feet. Now, who are Jesus' enemies? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says, Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Think about that. God is immutable. He's unchanging. His plan all along has been to destroy his enemies and that there will be a day, Revelation 20, 14 tells us, that he will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, for He is making all things new. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is in the process, that His plans have continued for the last millennia? And that His plans will not be thwarted? Do you trust that Jesus is better He's worth choosing again and again and again. God's immutability points to the fact that as much as we change and as much as we are uncertain, our days are like roller coasters many times. We're far more affected by our emotions than we would ever like to admit. The majority of us do not answer on a daily basis, I am content. In Jesus. But because of the fact that God is unchanging, we can trust in the work of Jesus that was done on the cross on our behalf. That we can choose Jesus. That we can choose again this day to love Him, to find satisfaction in Him, to see that He is worthy, to see that He is trustworthy because He is unchanging. I'm going to ask the band, if they would, to, to come up and, and to join me. And, and as they come up, um, I'm going to pre- just prepare us to worship at Jesus' table. We're going to worship together uh, through communion. And as we do that, I, I want to remind you of a part of communion that you may have never understood. When Jesus sat down with His disciples in that upper room, And Jesus instituted this meal that we 
it's more like fast food for us, but it was a meal in that day. It was actually a Seder meal in which they were celebrating the Passover when the death angel had passed over the children of Israel's homes back in Egypt. And as they're celebrating that meal, Jesus does something that's most unusual. Jesus interrupted the typical meal, typical Seder meal, and he began to use language that came from a marriage engagement ceremony. You see, back in the day, it's only been in the last couple hundred years that we get to pick our own bride. Back in the day, marriage was a lot more about the family. It was a lot more about uh, the father and what his career was and you furthering the heritage of the family. It was much less about independence, but more about kinship and community. And so sometimes at a really young age, even seven and eight years old, a young boy and a young girl would be betrothed. And there's a whole ceremony that goes into that. I'm not going to get into all of it. But in the midst of that, there was a cup of joy that would be taken up, much like this cup. And as wine was poured in that cup, it was the last opportunity for the young man as he took a sip from the cup of joy and passed it to the girl who was to be betrothed to him. It was her last opportunity to say yes or to say no. If she pushed the cup away, she could walk away and never be married to him. But if she drank of it, it was in essence her saying, when the time is right... I accept your engagement. And then the young man would go away, and he would begin, along with his father, to work on a room that would be attached to his father's house. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Jesus picked up this cup, and he, in essence, was saying, I today am choosing you to be my bride. Will you choose me? Do you remember his words to his disciples? I'll go away. In my father's house, there are many mansions, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. But I'll go away and prepare a place for you so that when I come again, I will receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you will be also. And his disciples said, we don't know where you're going. We don't know what the way is. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Today, as we come to the Lord's table, Jesus, in essence, is once again saying, I am the one who doesn't change. I will not renege on my relationship. Will you choose me? Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We'd invite you. I'd love to talk with you more about how you can come to know Him. How you can know the one who is unchanging in a personal way. How your sins can be forgiven and wiped away how you can spend life with Him for eternity. For those of us who do know Him, if you are here and you, you don't have to be a ch uh, church member, you don't have to even be a regular attender of this church to come and fellowship at this meal, but if you believe in Jesus, if you have trusted in Him by faith and repented of your sins, you are welcome at this table. Jesus says, I choose you today. Will you choose me? Let's pray.